The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. George Leventhal. He is immediate past president of the Montgomery County Council and is presently serving his fourth term as an at-large Democratic member where he chairs the council's Health and Human Services Committee. This committee is responsible for important programs that help serve the sick, poor, elderly, homeless, disabled, mentally ill, abused, and abandoned children. He also supports libraries, the arts, and humanities. And he serves on the Planning, Housing, and Economic Development Committee, which oversees the county's economic development efforts and zoning laws. Councilmember Leventhal has dedicated his career in public service to two ideals, advocating for the less fortunate and delivering a government that works. Mr. Leventhal works to make Montgomery County the cleanest, safest, healthiest county in America and has achieved success through proactive waste reduction, ecologically sound landscape practices, greenhouse gas reduction, and energy efficiency. He has earned numerous awards for his efforts and leadership, including the Climate Champion Award from the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the Mental Health Champion Award from Family Services Incorporated, Public Health Innovation Award from the Montgomery County Medical Society, and the Distinguished Service Award from the Montgomery County Coalition for the Homeless. Mr. Leventhal holds a master's degree in public administration from the Johns Hopkins University, a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from the University of California at Berkeley, and is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Maryland. I met Mr. Leventhal at the Beyond Pesticides board meeting in the fall of 2015 and heard him speak at the 2016 Beyond Pesticides annual forum in Portland, Maine, where he described his work on a bill that bans cosmetic pesticide use in public and private spaces. It's the largest jurisdiction in the United States to ban cosmetic use of pesticides in these spaces. Welcome, Mr. Leventhal. Thank you very much for inviting me. I am really interested in the legislation that you have been taking part in with regard to protecting the citizens in your county against Pesticides that are used largely to beautify lawns and other public and private spaces. And I wonder if we could just start out with you explaining how you became involved in this legislation. Well, thank you. You know, I've been an elected official on the Montgomery County Council in Maryland for 14 years, and I've chaired the health committee that oversees a variety of public health efforts. And Over the years, community advocates had addressed the issue of pesticides with me, and I have to say it took me some time. I'm not a chemist. I don't have a scientific background, and so of the issues that I felt I grasped well enough to take on, access to health care, affordable housing, trying to – we were a jurisdiction that put the calories on labels in restaurants through legislation, things that – were fairly easy for me to understand. The pesticide issue, I didn't know as much about, but there was a very dedicated group of community volunteers, and they actually began in the municipality in which I live, the suburb Tacoma Park, just outside Washington, D.C. And they 
addressed this issue of cosmetic use, that there is no need whatsoever to use pesticides or herbicides on grass, that you can have a lush, natural, beautiful, rich lawn without the use of toxic chemicals. And they persuaded the Tacoma Park City Council to enact the law, and I live in Tacoma Park. And they came to me during that period of time, and I'm a county council member, and they said, will you please endorse this law in the city of Tacoma Park? And I said, no, I'm not familiar with it, and I I don't want to take a position. And I anticipated that if I endorsed something at the municipal level, that they would come to me and say, well, of course, now you need to do it at the county level, and I was reluctant to get involved. So I sort of pushed back for a while, and then they enacted the law, and it was pretty contentious. You know, um, the chemical industry, there's a lobbying group called RISE, which is mostly funded by Monsanto, and they were active here in the city of Tacoma Park, and it got some media attention, and so I paid attention to it, and as I started to hear the arguments in favor of natural, organic lawn maintenance, it made sense to me when it was explained in a way that was simple enough for my feeble mind to grasp. And so then when they came back, said, well, now we've done it at the city level, and it's been in place now for a couple of years, and I don't see any evidence that property values are declining here in this very pleasant suburb of Washington, D.C., quite the contrary, and lawns look great. There doesn't seem to be any adverse effect of the law whatsoever. And then I heard from mothers. The group Safe Grow Montgomery is primarily moms whose children, many of them are asthmatic. They have uh, respiratory uh, conditions that are triggered by breathing in pesticides. And also just the ordinary anxiety that any parent feels about exposing children to adverse health conditions. And they got my attention. And so finally it started to make sense to me that these lawn care companies and individual property owners were using chemicals that had adverse effects on people and animals. That I heard more and more anecdotes about people's pets going out and running in the grass after the grass had been treated with fungicides and herbicides and pesticides and coming back with streaks of raw flesh because they've been burned by the chemicals after they've been applied and other homeowners telling me anecdotes about their pets developing cancerous tumors and believing that it was the result of being exposed to these chemicals. So it got my attention in a very human way. So my first effort was sort of a a compromise bill. It would have, for example, required a vote of homeowners associations before the homeowners association could contract with the company to apply pesticides. And it would have prohibited their use in public spaces, but not in private spaces. Well, when I circulated a discussion draft of this compromise bill, the chemical industry and its lobbyists just flipped out. I mean, you would have thought I was banning the whole thing altogether. And the Farm Bureau started to get very anxious because industry does not want any discussion of this topic at all in the public sphere. Industry is making a lot of profit selling these products, and the products aren't safe, and they don't want that known. So even this sort of tepid, lukewarm, weak tea approach that I thought might bring together the lawn care companies on the one hand and the environmentalists on the other, the lawn care companies and the pesticide lobby hated it, and the environmental advocates hated it. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to introduce a bill that nobody supports. That's not a good idea. So why don't I just go ahead and introduce the bill that the environmental advocates want? Because at least somebody will support it, and I might have a chance of getting something passed. Right. Well, what's so interesting to me is that you moved from a place where you were reluctant to embrace the legislation to one where you fully supported it. And I wonder, was it simply the fact that 
And I do want to let our listeners know there were five mothers who really took the lead on this. So we're talking about a very small number of people that were able to move you from, "Uh, I don't know about this, to really wholehearted support. What was it exactly? Right. Well, so then, again, I was sort of trying to find halfway measures and compromise approaches. So in addition to circulating this discussion draft of a lukewarm version that I ultimately did not pursue, we had a very general committee discussion before any bill was introduced to learn more about the application of pesticides, uh, both public and private, the risks of pesticides. And now I'm really paying attention. Uh, This was back in 2013. We had the first committee discussion of this. And it became clearer and clearer to me that the risks were real, and not only that the risks were real, that the methods of maintaining lawns without incurring these risks were just fine. And a number of national advocates who've been active in Beyond Pesticides came to the committee meeting and started sharing information with me. Chip Osborne, who promotes organic turf care throughout the United States and Canada, Jay Feldman from Beyond Pesticides. And so the environmental community started to see me as someone who was willing to really delve into this in a serious way, and they got me more and more information, and I became better informed. I don't claim today to be an expert, and I'm not a scientist, but I am very confident that the measure that we finally adopted, the Healthy Lawns Act, is good public policy and will not put the lawn care industry at risk. Homeowners are still going to want to hire people to take care of their grass and make it look nice. They'll just do it in ways that are not harmful to children and pets and our water supply. Right. Well, it's interesting. At the beginning of your keynote, you spoke a little bit about Montgomery County being that it was the home of Rachel Carson and that you have a very educated populace. You have passed some very progressive legislation in your county. You've Certainly, you've banned trans fats. You've banned styrofoam. Hallelujah. Thank you. The future generations are thanking you as we speak. And I wonder, how many times have you had to come up against this idea that, you know, you're creating a nanny state and that we don't need people telling us what to do. This is America. We can treat our lawn with chemicals if we want to. Sure. Well, this nanny state slogan is used a lot to describe our county here in suburban Washington, D.C., and I've come to the conclusion that when you talk about a nanny state, what you're really saying is that you do not think that government should play an active role in protecting public health and the environment, because if you're going to protect public health and the environment, then you're going to legislate in a way that prevents abuse of hazardous materials, that prevents uh, the introduction into our waterways of things like plastic bags. You know, we have a tax on plastic bags. We're not alone in the United States in doing these things, but we've done a lot of things like that, and I'm proud of the results we've gotten. We are the healthiest county in Maryland, according to the America's Healthiest Counties rankings, and we're not the richest county in Maryland. We are the largest county in Maryland, and we've provided universal access to health care here, but it's taken an active government. And I think our body politic, you know, a lot of people come here to work in Washington, D.C., to either work for the federal government or sell to the federal government. We want government to work. We want government to be actively involved in solving problems and improving conditions and protecting the public health. But then the other side of that is people say, well, you're a nanny state. You're too involved. You're you're telling me that I got to, what kind of shopping bag I should use or that I shouldn't smoke in a restaurant. When, when I was elected to the county council the first time, 2002, the 
first really huge controversy we faced back in 2003 was to prohibit smoking in bars and restaurants. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness, the sky was falling. The industry was going to collapse. The restaurants wouldn't be able to make a profit, and, you know, it was just going to be devastating. And every year since then, restaurant revenues have increased. And now, 13 years later, it seems very strange, I think, in most big cities, to remember a time when people used to light up a cigarette in a restaurant. It's, right. it's very uncommon now, but Montgomery County has been ahead of the curve on that and many other issues, and I think what we've done here in prohibiting the use of toxic chemicals on people's lawns will also be a trendsetter, but we're kind of an early adopter, and and so that has fed this right-wing trope that we're a nanny state. I would think that property values in Montgomery County would increase because of the protections afforded to children in particular. So if I was a new mom and I was going to be moving to that area of the country and I thought, boy, you know, where am I going to live? I would be very much attracted to buying a home in a county that had that level of protection. Oh, yeah. I think there certainly are people who, nine of us are liberal Democrats on the county council. We were elected by our public. So the tone of the government that people complain about is the government that people elected. We are reflective of the political culture from which we come. So right. I do think people choose to live here in the D.C. area for a certain amount of sophistication and a feeling that they're cared for and that it's a healthy and safe environment with you know, obviously excellent schools and a high quality of life. All of those things go into it. But then industry will scream and complain and threaten that, the economy will collapse or people will flee, but it's sort of funny. I mean, you get complaints. When you're an elected official, primarily people talk to you to complain. It's very rare that people think to call up their elected official to say, hey, everything's great. My kid got a great report card. I love my home. My community's safe. Thanks a lot. That We don't get those phone calls. So we, <laughs> we get the phone calls that say, there's something wrong. I need you to fix it. And we get a lot of complaints about the high cost of housing. I mean, a lot. And it's a very serious issue. Our workforce struggles. It's very expensive to live here. And so that is not consistent with these threats that somehow an over-eager government is chasing people out of the county. If the government was chasing people out of the county, then housing prices wouldn't be so high, right? That doesn't make sense. Exactly. Let me take one moment to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Mr. George Leventhal. He is a council member on the Montgomery County Council, and that is in Montgomery County, Maryland, and we are talking about the fabulous progressive legislation that was enacted in his county to ban cosmetic use of pesticides on both private and public lands. And if anybody's wondering why a dietitian would be interested in this, pesticide drift is a real issue when you're living next door to someone who's using these products and the wind is blowing and you've got a vegetable garden and you suddenly discover that some of your vegetables have been harmed. It hurts children. It hurts pets. It also contaminates our water, and water is our number one nutrient. So all of these issues are connected. I want to talk a little bit about this definition of cosmetic pesticides. Tell me what that means in particular. Well, really, we're just talking about lawns. Right. So there are a lot of exclusions in the Act because, frankly, we didn't want to take on those fights. This law does not address agriculture at all. It does mm -hmm. not address golf courses. It does not address trees or shrubs. So if someone has an ornamental 
rose garden, those sorts of things. We're not addressing any of those things. We're just talking about expanses of grass, which it is absolutely unnecessary to use toxic chemicals to have a rich, attractive, lush, green lawn. There's lots of natural methods, aerating the soil, heavily seeding, regular mowing, but not mowing too short. I mean, there's some very, very simple traditional ways of maintaining an attractive lawn that don't require the application of chemicals that are harmful, they're unsafe to store, the workers are exposed to hazards, they trigger all kinds of respiratory diseases, and several of the substances are probable carcinogens. So they're just not safe, and there's no need to incur the risk because there's better ways of maintaining a a gorgeous, healthy, lush expanse of grass in a natural and safe way. Right, and I should let our listeners know that beyond pesticides, the organization that has been working with you and that brought you to Maine to give your keynote presentation has literature on how to have that beautiful lawn without the use of these toxins. I want to talk a little bit about what spaces are included because I think as a parent myself and you as well, we have kids that play sports. I never even thought that those playing fields would be sprayed with chemicals. I just It didn't even cross my mind. And yet playing fields was one of the areas that you wanted to try to intervene, but you had some pushback from the Parks Department. Yeah, we did. So as I said, the early discussion when I was trying to learn more about this that we had in committee, I was really taken aback. The first assurance we got from the school system and the Parks Department was, well, we really use these toxic chemicals very sparingly and very rarely. And then when they started to describe the frequency with which they really do use them, it was really disturbing and it persuaded me to pursue this legislation. And things like, you know, look, on a soccer field, if there is a clump of weeds and a child trips over it, then we could get sued. Well, so you're going to expose that same child to the risk of lifelong disease. Children do fall down. They do roll around in the grass and they're going to inhale and swallow toxic chemicals in the name of protecting them from weeds. If you've got a clump of weeds, just get out a lawnmower. It just didn't make sense to me. And and clearly there was overuse because through laziness. I mean, it's easier to stand up and spray Roundup than it is to bend over and pull a weed, but that's not wise. So as I understood the practices that were in place, it became clearer to me that we really needed to legislate in this area. So the Healthy Lawns Act prohibits the use of registered pesticides on lawns, playgrounds, mulch recreation areas, and all children's facilities and their grounds. And that's fundamentally what it does. And then you've also got five field pilot tests going on. Well, yeah, that's right. The Parks Department scared enough of my colleagues by saying that you can't have playing fields without the use of pesticides, that instead of an outright ban in a near-term way, we're implementing a pilot program that will lead to an outright ban by 2020. That's great. And I definitely want to follow this to see how it all turns out. I'm very And that hopeful. was a compromise. I, I, yeah. As I introduced it, the bill was much stronger with respect to playing fields, but there were some uh, kind of conservative traditional people in the Parks Department who uh, just aren't familiar with uh, healthy organic uh, methods, although there's a lot of expertise out there. The city of Boulder, Colorado, has great experience over many years of complete pesticide-free playing fields. And most of the provinces in Canada have adopted laws like this. So there is a lot of experience in doing this successfully on playing fields. And 
I'm very, very optimistic that the pilot will be successful and that we'll be able to move successfully towards preventing the application of these chemicals on flying fields. Yes, and it's my understanding that it was the success in Canada that led to the chemical industry making sure that many states in the United States could not pass individual ordinances. So bravo for you for being in Maryland. I live in Missouri. We are one of the preempted states, which means that we are limited in terms of what we can legislate with regard to banning these chemicals, which is why I was so interested in the beginning of our conversation about what it was that moved you you know, it was this education campaign. Maybe we can't have individual legislation, or maybe we could work to remove that or work at the state level, but we can certainly start with a basic education campaign. Well, that helped me a lot, absolutely. I mean, it takes some time. You know, not many elected officials have chemistry, scientific, medical background. Right. And, you know, most people in elected office come from more of a political science, legal, humanities background. And so... It was important to me, to educate me, that you put a human face on the issue, that, you know, moms expressing their very deep-seated anxiety about their asthmatic children and how, you know, when the next-door neighbor is having the lawn care company come over and spray, they have to keep their children indoors for a couple of days, and that didn't seem fair to me. I mean, it was that very human description of the real impact on people's lives that made an impression on a woolly-headed humanities major like me. (laughs) Right. Well, I think one of the other arguments that we hear, well, there are two things that I hear in my own community, and I'm sure these concerns are ubiquitous, but the fact that, and you touched on this, that, oh my goodness, if we start banning these kinds of potentially harmful chemicals, people are going to lose their jobs. You know, the lawn care companies are going to go out of business. And what you mentioned in your keynote is just the opposite happened. These companies are hiring more people, and they're being extremely successful. Well, look, there's a lot to unpack in that, and it really was extraordinary. There was an effort by the lawn care companies to mobilize the Latino community on the basis that a large number of lawn care employees are relatively recent immigrants and that if you had to have a change in practices, that that would put a lot of Latino workers out of their jobs. Now, just think about that from the standpoint of environmental justice, because when you pass these laws, you are substantially improving the working conditions and the health of the workers in these lawn care companies. So if what you're saying is that we should tolerate exposure to toxic chemicals by employees just so that they can have to work, no one should have to be exposed to conditions that endanger their lives as a condition of employment. That's fundamentally unjust, and it's a, an extraordinary issue of environmental justice, particularly when you're concentrating on one ethnic community. You're basically saying, well, we're going to tolerate a higher level of risk and exposure for Latinos than we would for ourselves. So, uh, you know, really when you unpack those claims, you can see me getting kind of riled up and angry here. I'm with you. You know, that's just appalling. The truth is that natural lawn care is more labor-intensive. If you have people pulling weeds, it stands to reason you may need more of them than if you are spraying over a large area. So, indeed, natural lawn care should create jobs. We've seen estimates, I mean, whether the law passed or failed, I mean, it did ultimately pass, it has been a bonanza for the natural organic practitioners already in the county. The more publicity this law got, 
the phone started ringing off the hook from homeowners who said, oh, yeah, I want that. I don't need to be legally required to do it. I don't want to expose my children and my pets to harm. I want to hire one of these companies. So they're doing extremely well. I've gotten to know the owners of these companies, and, you know, they're adding staff. They're buying equipment. They're growing because more and more consumers want safe practices. Exactly. I thought it was interesting, too, that the opposition to this legislation, you spoke about this group called RISE, which was basically made up of the chemical industry. That's correct. That they worked so hard to get a health care provider to be on their side. They couldn't find a single one. They couldn't find a single one. Yeah. And yet, you know, when I've spoken to individuals who are applying these compounds, they are constantly trying to tell me that they're safe. And, you know, we've got lots of evidence. There is a, a misnomer that, you know, if the EPA has put their seal of approval or they've registered a chemical, that somehow that means it's safe. And I, I really want our listeners to understand that that's not the case at all. Well, first of all, the EPA itself publishes literature describing these chemicals as poisons. These are not safe chemicals. The EPA never has said that they are safe. They publish extensive guidelines about how to avoid and the need to avoid exposure to these chemicals. What the EPA does is it relies on the data provided by industry. EPA does not test these products in its own labs. It doesn't have labs like that. It relies upon the results of studies done by the chemical companies themselves. In addition, it registers each chemical substance in isolation. It does not investigate the effects of compounds. So any of these commercially available products is composed of multiple toxic chemicals together, and the EPA does not investigate the combined effects of all of those chemicals. It only evaluates the data provided by the manufacturer on each toxic substance in isolation. And I keep using the word toxic. If anyone's listening and saying, well, how do you know they're toxic? You know they're toxic because they're pesticides. The suffix side means to kill. That's what it means. And if it is killing grubs or beetles or weeds, the toxicity, of course, has adverse effects on other living organisms. They're not safe. It's a question of what quantity and how can you safely apply them. And what the principle uh, that's applied in many other countries is the protective principle, that we really ought to avoid it if there's risk, where in the United States the EPA allows products to be commercially sold if there is no proof that they are directly connected to cancer or other diseases, um, whereas in other countries, in Europe, for example, the burden of proof is on the manufacturer that they do not cause these adverse health effects. So it's a different approach, and the EPA itself has never said that these products are safe. They are poisonous. It's a question of how much exposure under what circumstances, and how do you protect against too much exposure? The EPA publishes an abundance of material about how to prevent the hazards that occur from these chemicals. Well, Mr. Leventhal, our time is up, but I want to thank you very much for being such a dedicated civil servant. I will provide a link for our listeners for your excellent keynote that you gave at the Beyond Pesticides Forum. 
and I will also provide a link to your website there in Montgomery County. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us, remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, and I want to thank my guest, Mr. George Leventhal, council member on the Montgomery County Council in Maryland. Thank you so much for being my guest. It was fun and a real pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>